Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Dove and Dragon Radio. I'm your host, ML Roosechuck. I'm here with special guest, Douglas Weisman. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And hopefully I didn't betray your name too badly. No, actually, you got it spot on. Most people... Be like Weisman, Wiseman, you were spot on. <laughs> awesome. I'm doing good today then. So you are a writer, but before we get into what you wrote, why did you start writing? I am just compelled by stories. And I've been that way for as long as I can remember. Anytime I have the opportunity to listen to a story, I will take it. And then I'll even regurgitate that story, somehow making it my own, not necessarily stealing it or appropriating it, but just eager to share that story with other people and adding my voice to that collection of voices who have told it. Mm-hmm. And I just can't escape it. It's something that drives me, that has urged me forward ever since the second grade is the the first time I remember it really moving me. That is a long time. I think the first time <laughs> I started writing stories was in 2006. And I started doing the whole fan fiction thing. Oh, yeah. You know, just something to do to get the story out there and get more attention to it. That's exactly it. I mean, second grade, I didn't know that that's what I was doing, but I wrote this whole kind of anti-Cinderella story that my teacher loved and had me read it in front of the class. But there were so many conflicting emotions once I grew up and, and heard all those stories. You won't make any money writing, writing's pointless, go get a different career where I actually survive or whatever. And it took a long time until I I committed to actually writing as my career, but I made it work. So all those naysayers that say you can't do it are lying. I know. Um, my first book came out in 2016 and I have family members say, oh, you're not an author. Okay. <laughs> 20 books later, they still say I'm not an author. <laughs> right. 20 books. What does it take? 20 books and you're still not an author. Yeah, exactly. It's like some of those naysayers, you're like, what does it take to get yeah. you to just admit a person is an author? You don't have to admit they're a great author. You just have to admit they're an author. Right. That's exactly it. They don't have to be great, but they are still an author. That's what one book, half a book. A short story? I don't know. But at the same time, they're still writing. So do it more than others. Yeah. And you're making it your career, but you just had a book come out. So what is the title of it? What is it? So Life Between Seconds is my most recent book. Came out November 15th, 2022. And it took me me 10 years to get it published. A little over 10 years. But that's a little bit misleading because I was in a grad school program. So I started writing it in that program. And then after the program, there were a lot of revisions and taking it to agents and getting it rejected and taking it to more agents and revising again. And then I finally found a small publisher to publish it. And then it was three years from that moment before it came out. So 10 years is the whole life span of what it took, but it's really 
not 10 years, if that makes sense. I didn't spend 10 years writing the whole thing, maybe five, and then another five getting it published. So. <laughs> well, at least you're, you're bringing a good point up. It's sometimes it takes years to make a masterpiece, right? Yeah. Thank you for calling it a masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> So. I'm, I'm sorry I'm an author so I appreciate how much work goes into writing the book then you have the editing then you have the formatting then you have the re-editing yeah. then you have the pains of finding a publisher and then working with the publisher and how long it takes the publisher to actually publish it. yeah and I appreciate so much of what you just said especially when you said pains of finding a publisher because it can feel painful, but the revision process can also feel painful. That's my favorite part of the process, but it can feel painful. But it's also, I think, the part that so many new writers forget about or don't realize is an important part. They think that editing is like crossing the T's and dotting the I's when really that's where so much of the storytelling takes place. Like, don't think about writing a perfect draft. Just think about writing a draft. And then that's why they're drafts, because you just you get there eventually. It doesn't come out the first time. I have an author that refuses to write more than three drafts. I'm like, that is, wow. Does that work well for them? <laughs> I, I assume it works well for them. Yeah. I mean, if it works well for them, great. For me, this, this book that came out, Life Between Seconds, 11 drafts. Oh, oh, oh you're way ahead of the game then. <laughs> My mean, first, the yeah. first book I wrote, and I'm going to bring this up for comparison. It was published five times. Each time it was republished, there was at least four revisions before it went to the publish. Oh, wow. So that's about 20, about 20 overall? Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm finally satisfied with it. So that's good. Yeah. You're golden. <laughs> no, I was going to say anybody can correct my math because I, I got into writing because math is not my strongest thing. So somebody can be like, no, it's 27 times. I, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. I quit counting that the five. <laughs> yeah, also a good point. Also, but I mean, it's I love it. Especially you can attest to this, having rewritten that same book and published it over so many different times. But now you're happy with it, realizing every time adds something more and 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 makes it richer. And life between seconds started out as what was originally supposed to be a story of just two people. Peter, who's a 20-something American, and Sophia, who's a 70-something Argentinian, and how their unlikely friendship helps them overcome their, their traumas. But as I kept writing and kept writing, all of a sudden new characters became more prominent, such as Sophia's daughter, who disappears during the Argentine Dirty War. Peter's mother, who affects him greatly because of her suicide. Peter's teddy bear, who's a <laughs> who has a German accent and an eye patch who just became this character that I fell in love with and I didn't want to get rid of. So I found new opportunities for him to come in and shine, but it came through revision. It wasn't there on the first draft. It wasn't there in my first intention. And mm -hmm. as it grew, they became so rich and so integral to the overall plot and the way Peter and Sophia healed that I could not have imagined this book without them. Exactly. When you go through the revision process, you find other voices that say, hey, I need to be in this book. Yeah. I'm ready to have my voice heard now. You didn't hear me the first time because I wasn't still in the shadows. Yeah. And, and sometimes there are more prominent characters that are the opposite that say, maybe I don't need to be in this book. And, mm -hmm. and it can be heartbreaking at the same time. There was one character 
that I had that with and I took her out completely and then realized, oh wait, there's one space for her. So rather than being there for 150 pages, which she was there and then disappeared for another 150 pages, it was, oh wait, okay, she fits into these 10 pages and that works for her and I get to keep her here, but otherwise she has to be removed from the rest of the story. Right, there's, if you don't understand the mind of an author, you're going to be very confused on this conversation. <laughs> but, <laughs> we, talk to, we talk to our characters and our characters tell us what they want to do in the story. It's, it's so true. It is so true. We get to be schizophrenic and, and have multiple personalities and not have anybody, well, people will still look at us weird, but it comes out in a very different way. Yes. And I have sat there no joke. I have sat there in a cafe writing my story with people staring at me because I'm talking to a character and having them respond to me and be like, oh, that's really good and typing it out. Luckily, I was living in San Francisco at the time, so it felt kind of normal, but maybe it doesn't always feel that way. And sometimes when I'm at home and my wife is listening, she's like, who are you talking to? Well, me. <laughs> yeah. See, my daughter's also a writer, so she yeah. does the same thing. So I have to, I ask her if she's talking to me or she's talking to her story. Is she's talking to her story? Great. I don't have to pay attention. If she's talking to me, I'll stop what I'm doing, pay attention to her because that's a completely different conversation. Yep. Absolutely. And I, I find it bleeding over into my family while like everybody's now talking for the dog or talking for the cat or my three-year-old has, she's three, but has such a distinctive voice and personality, but it's hard for my wife and I to let go of the voice that we have given her from when she was born and being like, oh, this is how she talks. And this is, we live in Los Angeles, but for some reason we gave our three-year-old, well, when she was born, we gave her the voice of like a Southern belle. No idea why, but she just had this really soft, like Georgia peach accent, but would say really uh, crude things with a very soft accent. We thought it was just hilarious, but now she does not obviously have a Georgia accent because uh, she's three and expressing her very Los Angeles style of voice. So it's, it's well, blowing us out of the water. Well, you have to take it to Georgia so she can pick up the accent and then bring her back to California. Yeah, that's exactly it. Just so she could have the accent of what we envisioned in our heads. And that there is how go. committed I am to storytelling. <laughs> You know, I talk to a lot of authors. You have the committed to their story and you have the, oh, I'm just writing it for fun. Well, if you're really committed, you're going to take your characters to the next level. Yeah. Yep. And the family gets involved. I'm sorry. My daughter was not a writer when I started my first book. She is now writing her own stories. She's mm -hmm. not to the point of publishing it because she's not there. But at the same time, it bleeds over. I yeah. don't have any doubt in my mind with you being so articulate with your characters that your children will do something with writing. I, I honestly, I hope so. I see it in the way my daughter's already telling stories. She loves to tell stories. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite things, and, and this is one of those stories where as a parent, like now I understand why my parents would share all these embarrassing stories about me when I was a kid, where, you know, to me as the child, I was embarrassed, but now, as the parent, I'm like, this is the cutest thing I've ever seen. I'm going to remember this for the rest of my life. And it was, she was two. So this is about a year ago, give or take some change. And she would sit there with a book in her lap 
And she would just look at us and go, scary story, spooky story. And that was her idea of what a scary story was. And she loves scary stories, but that was her telling us a story. And as she grew more articulate and becomes more articulate every day, she's obviously adding more words and more plot line to that. But she's she's still already telling us stories. And I am eager to collect the things she says so I can spin them into something magical that she inspired. Right. It's going to be a character that's three or four in your book and you have all these little nuggets taken from your daughter. She's now a character in your book. Yeah, exactly. I am I am upfront with people when I tell them that I do take inspiration from people in my life and instill them into my characters. Now, it's not verbatim, but Sophia in Life Between Seconds is a prime example how she is a match of my maternal and paternal grandmothers. One was really gentle and soft and always had the curls in her hair, always barely done up. And so in that physical way, she's that grandmother. But then in this really kind of terse, my 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 dad's mom was from East Coast. So like really quintessentially East Coast Jewish is was my, my dad's mother. And that kind of real brusque love, but but real tough mind that was in Sophia as well. So you combine those two things and then all of a sudden she, she sparked and then became her own person, but it was a starting point. And I do that with most of my characters. They start as one thing until they develop into their own person and then, and then move from there. Exactly. It, you should get a shirt that says I'm a writer. Anything you say to me can and be, can and will be used in a future book. Yep. Absolutely. You do not get off. Anything you say that I remember or write down is fair game. <laughs> yep. I mean, I can't tell you how many people that I've killed in my books because I, it's illegal to do it in real life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how it's a stress relief. <laughs> it is. I go, okay, you're making me mad today. I'm going to write a character just so I can kill the character. It may or may not be in this book when I get it done, but it's a nice stress reliever. Yeah. But for today, it works. There was this really great poet. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And I always forget her name. I have her book, her, her chat book, and it's beautiful. But I watched her read once, and, and she was talking about how she came up with these poems. And all of them have her as a central character and death, as in she's dating death. So it turns death into like an actual person that interacts with her. And she says that she was, when she wrote them, she was kind of in this really dark, depressed place and it helped her write through that depression. And I was so intrigued by that, that just kind of facing the thing that you're afraid of, or this thing that feels like it's weighing you down and then being able to express your way through it. So I feel like that's the same thing as taking a, a person who's annoying you in the day and like killing them off in your story. Just, just I'm writing through this. So you are protected. Yes. That's exactly what it is. 
regardless what the stressor is of the day, it could be business related, it could be a person related, whatever it is, you can turn it into whatever in a story and work through the stress and then sit back and laugh at it. Exactly. And I, I took that same idea with even to the using death where I was really anxious about being a new father and really anxious about what what I can do to be the best father I can be and having a daughter and, and not knowing what to do at all. And I wrote a short story where death as the main character goes to a parent teacher conference and, you know, his daughter is like in trouble and he just has to be a father, like no power, nothing to do, but listen and figure out how can I help my daughter in this situation? And it, it helped me through that, that anxiety and that fear. And it also made me laugh because just thinking of death, this powerful being that no one can escape in a parent-teacher conference where, where he can do nothing but listen. And like even those moments where he gets prickled and wants to kill the teacher because she upsets him or something and he, and he can't do it. He's going to kill the teacher because she gives a comment about his daughter having bad grades. Oh my, <laughs> we can't have a child having bad grades in this world, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> so it's... So I still laugh about it. And it, it was published, I forget which, it was published on an online zine, I forget which one, but I was so excited that I could put that kind of story out there with, with this little bit of, of macabre humor to it. That's always wonderful. But are you writing another book? Not just a story, but another book. I am actually. I'm in the process of editing another book that should be out late this year or early next year. The publishing date's not set yet, but it is with the publisher Between the Lines. So it's another independent press and it's called Girl in the Ashes. It's about a serial killer in occupied Paris in World War II and how she uses the chaos of the occupation to find her next victims that are always men. That's going to be really wonderful to hear about because how true can that actually be? Yeah, uh, there. So upon my research to see kind of what truths can I take from this and then build on those and how accurate can I make this? Because I, I love fabulism. I love adding little bits of fantasy into daily life. Hence the existence of Klaus in Life Between Seconds, the German accented teddy bear uh, and how he comes to life and speaks with, with Peter. But in in Girl in the Ashes, it was about how real can I make this idea even in a fantastical way, which is always the best ways, right? Mm -hmm. How can you make something feel concrete and real in this instance, even if it's fantasy? And I learned that there was actually a serial killer in Paris who used the occupation to, to find victims. And he, it was, a, it was a he, so already I'm twisting things by mm -hmm. making it a woman, but he would lure uh, victims, mostly Jewish, Jewish families into his place. And he'd basically steal their money and he'd kind of lure them there by promising them an escape from Paris, steal their money, kill them, buried them in his yard. And then after everything ended, they found all the bodies and he said, no, no, they're Germans. And I, I was fighting on the, the resistance, the side of good. And then of course it turned out that he was not. And I mean, it was just this crazy story that I found and, and use some details to be able to flesh out my own my own story i i'm really into world war ii history and yeah. i've never came across that so yeah. I, I think i'm gonna have to go back to my history and go to the more macabre what else was going on during this time in the same right. area i mean what 
what can you miss? There's obviously these grand big picture things that happen that take mm -hmm. all the focus. And when you narrow down inside of that, you start to find these little interesting stories that are obviously overlooked for good reason. I'm I'm Jewish. I was raised Jewish and from the Jewish community, very tight-knit group. And I have family members and friends and family friends who are you know, part of part of fighting and part of being stationed in Germany or, or in Europe and it had to deal with the Holocaust, all these things. And so that's where my understanding was. So it's like totally far away from, from what was going on in say the, the Pacific, even though mm -hmm. my, both my grandparents, my grandfathers, both mother and father's father were stationed in the Pacific during world war II, but still it was like, so outside of my purview because my focus was always on what was going on in Europe and the concentration camps. But then narrowing down into what was actually going on in Paris when doing the research and finding just this great, the crazy amount of things that were happening that are still documented and shared and that go overlooked because understandably, but still go overlooked because of the other things that were going on. It's just, it's just crazy. Right. You think, well, think about this. A bank robber is not going to stop rob robbing banks because there's a war going on. Our serial killer is not going to stop killing. They're just going to change what they're killing. Yeah. You know, just if you think about it that way, now you have 200 new stories that you can write. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually part of part of how I was looking at it, where it's, you know, as time goes on, we'll see. But the idea was originally to have Girl in the Ashes as book one in kind of a a loosely connected trilogy where the first one takes place in Paris. The second one takes place in Arter sur Glane, which is a, a town in Southern France where the Germans massacred the whole town. They like rounded them up in a, in a barn and set the barn on fire. And kind of the story revolves around that. And then the third one would be based in Rome and the underground that took place trying to funnel people out of France or out of Eastern Europe, Central Europe to, to get them into Italy, which wasn't friendly, but was at least safer towards, towards Jews in, in that time. So we'll see as time moves on what the movement is on those other two books, but this is at least the, the foundation of that tree. Well, that's a good thing because you hit on things that people don't realize. You can have the background of what's going on and the underground, it wasn't a railroad over, over there it's just the underground but um you have the people moving out secretly out of the country yeah exactly and it's it's just i mean the intensity the drama that's inherent in that one movement is already so impactful and then through these books and through what i write i realized that I have certain obsessions and my, I once had a instructor, a writing professor who told me, it's like every great writer has a, an obsession or a few obsessions and they always write to those obsessions. And whenever they remove those obsessions, you realize, oh, that wasn't my favorite book because they didn't have that same intensity and passion about it. And mine are coming through very clearly as I wrote Life Between Seconds and then Girl in the Ashes. And as I move forward with these other novels, it's always about trauma. It's always about relationships and and how those kind of relationships create found family dynamics and those I think are incredibly powerful because everybody has experienced trauma in their own way everybody experienced that trauma differently and carries it with them differently and then they express it differently and then we find how relationships are are able to either 
grow those or not. And so it makes it incredibly difficult every time to, to really understand, but also to me, enjoyable to explore how those relationships can either infect or affect our, our exactly. traumas. If you take it from a Jewish person's going through everything you're putting them through to a non-Jewish person going just step back once removed, they're still in the war, they're experiencing the war differently, but how their experiences change yeah. is still drama and you still have the dust going on, but you also have everything else going on. Yeah, and that's exactly it too. There was this great quote, and I'm not going to quote it verbatim, but just to paraphrase by, I think her name's Genji Cohen. I never know how to pronounce her name, but she's the, the creator of shows like Weeds or Orange is the New Black. And she said that she used these affluent, you know, upper middle class to wealthy white women as, as Trojan horses to actually explore the stories of people of color or people that don't get the stage more often and these communities that you don't necessarily see, but you don't really think of it as that exploration because you're seeing it from the perspective at first and then through the doorway of these certain characters that you connect with that you are more familiar with. And that's one, how I approach Life Between Seconds where, all right, here's this, you know, cisgendered male character who is kind of floundering in this way but we understand that character we know that character we feel connected to that character but then through him we meet Sophia and here's this new story from someone from Argentina that we've never experienced or maybe have heard on the periphery but now we're invested in this person because of the way they're connected to Peter and then we moved to Girl in the Ashes and I've and exactly as you said we're getting a different story as, as we've seen so many times, the story of the Holocaust told from the concentration camp perspective or told from someone involved in that space or told from the Jewish perspective in World War II. And I love those stories, but I was trying to think, how can I offer that Trojan horse where now we're gonna see this from a different perspective while still invested in that? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, here's a character that's immediately interesting as a female serial killer who's not going to be worried about being rounded up in the Valdiv roundup where all the Jews were put into the, the Hippodrome, but still will end up having connections to those moments. And so you can see it through this person's eyes and how they're affected by it. Right. If now it's making it harder for them to find their mark, Presumably, I haven't read the book, so I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, you have all the things going on. And like I said, a serial killer is not going to quit killing unless they have to. Why right. do they have to? They're incarcerated, they're dead, or something else life-changing happens that they have to change what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And even in those instances where they have to change, they'll still they try really? to find a way. Yeah, exactly. They'll still try to find a way to do it. It's it's a compulsion. It is. Just like being a thief is a compulsion in some cases. Yeah. Being, you know, whatever it is, is a compulsion. You're compelled to do it and you can't stop just because a war breaks out. Yeah. And uh, as you see, at least in the beginning of the story, the war is actually a great veil for continuing with what you're doing as opposed to a detriment. 
Well, there you go. But we're almost out of time. So where can our listeners and our viewers find more about you and your books? Absolutely. So douglasweisman.com is my website. I am also very active on LinkedIn at Douglas Weisman. You can find me on Instagram at Douglas Weisman. My name, luckily, is not very common. So I was able to get all these handles very easily. And on Instagram, I'm also reading a page a day, five days a week from Life Between Seconds. So you can hear it out loud if that's your preference. You can even go back all the way to page one if you prefer. Right now, I think I'm on page 94 or 95. But this way, you can even get attached to the experience and to the ambiance just by hearing me read it. It is not an actor, but I am hoping to get an actor to read it on audiobook very soon. So it's a very different experience. Audiobooks is a different experience. I wish you well on that one. Thank you. But thank you so much for sharing your stories today. Thank you for having me. This was a delight. And for our reviewers and our listeners, happy reading. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.